fact, Steve was lying to you during that speed uh, workout that he, he was doing. Um, in fact, Sweet Home Alabama has no chance, no chance whatsoever of uh, making that list. And now I, that I've um, alienated probably one half of my audience, i let you guess which ones it was. Yeah. Um, do something we never do. Can you introduce yourself to somebody next to you to kind of get you into the spirit of friendliness, not something we're really given to here. Um, and th- but the idea is this. Introduce yourself to the person next to you, even if you've been married to them for like 10, 15, 20 years, and, and tell them, uh, this little piece of information, what is the longest distance that you have covered continuously, either, you know, in some, either walking, uh, running, riding a bicycle, a tricycle, uh, whatever it is. Maybe it's just from the from the couch to the refrigerator for some of you and from others it may be that you did a cross-country bicycle ride but just tell them that and then uh, I'll be back so do that for just a couple minutes and don't have too much fun I know Are you telling the Mission Viejo story? Are you telling <laughs> What's that? Counts. Sure, why not? All right. Although it's not her longest, uh, her longest distance covered, I feared that Kathy was telling, my wife Kathy was telling John, about the time that uh, we were running in Mission Viejo, California, we were out there to watch the Olympics, and uh, we were on a run, and, and I told her I knew where we were going, and I was so lost. And, uh, yeah, we ended up at the bottom of a hill, and we were trying to get back to the house of our friends. was was like, I don't know, it seemed like 20 miles away, and uh, there, was a, there, was, there was a lot of crying and stomp, stomping of feet, and not like one foot in front of the other kind of stomping in that distance. So, talking about distances traveled... Um, on October 20th, um, 1968, long time ago, um, the Olympic marathon was held in Mexico City. Now, the minimum elevation of Mexico City is 7,300 feet. And, and not that all marathons are not arduous, because they are, but certainly Olympic marathons, athletes at that level, it is, you know, Ferocious, the competition, 7,300 feet, a hot day, and, and actually run in the afternoon. And this man is not the winner, but this man is my hero. The winner that day was a guy named Mama Waldi, an African, uh, who really cemented the African movement and distant run, distance running with that win. He came behind another boyhood hero of mine, a B.B. Bikili, who had won, the year, won four years before. Uh, Mama Waldi strode into the uh, stadium, the applause of people, and captured the gold medal. Um, 74 runners started that day, 17 dropped out, which is saying something, and 57 finished. The 57th is number, was number 36. His name was John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania. Uh, he finished an hour behind the winner. He finished 20 minutes behind uh, the, uh, the, tw- the 56th finisher. It wasn't that Aquari was a, a bad runner. He wasn't. He was a great runner. He had a bad day. Um, he fell several times. He, in the course of falling, uh, put a big gash on one of his knees and dislocated that knee. And yet, 
he went to the finish. And um, if you have time and you're just kind of rooting around, um, go to YouTube and just put in his name, Aquari, A-K-W-A-R-I, or Mexico Marathon Finish, and you'll get him. There's a bunch of videos out there showing the finish. It's just a great story. So anyway, um, when he finished the race, most of the other contestants had already gone back to the village, the Olympic village, where the athletes stay. And even the stadium was pretty much empty. It was pretty dead at night. And uh, one of the reporters asked him, so, um, so why didn't you just quit? And he had this very simple response. He said, um, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Pretty good. We are in this series about being missionally engaged, and that is a phrase that is so high up on the abstraction ladder, it's difficult to imagine what it means. But what I think it means is this. It means two things. Missionally engaged Christians are people that are intentionally connecting with God. And they are doing the things that it takes to build a deep, intimate relationship with God. And secondly, they are engaging the people around them, the world around them. And they're doing it in a way that's unique and which is not necessarily the way that Christians always interact with the culture around them. They are interacting with their neighbors and with their family and with their friends and people who doubt the message of Christ. And they're doing it in a way that is at all at the same time merciful, compassionate. Is that another word for that? But mission, uh, merciful, courageous, and full of humility. And so if you walk out today, that's what I want you to take away that a missionally connected Christian is not somebody that has all the right presets on the radio. Um, it's not, it isn't that they have a list of things that they're doing perfectly, but it's somebody who is really connecting to God and really, in a very, really positive way, interacting and influencing their friends and their neighbors. So that's it. Um, we're going to take a look at um, some verses out of a book, uh, a letter actually, a short letter, called Jude. It's near the end of the Bible. It's just 25 verses long, and we're going to look at nine of those. And uh, this writer, Jude, um, wrote this letter because he was addressing specifically uh, churches at that time that were struggling with a particular heresy. By that, what I mean is there was some teaching out there in church circles that was not teaching that the original founders of the church, the apostles, um, really, um, really agreed with. And so people were living in this situation in their churches where really, in truth, the, um, the, some of the biggest detractors of the faith were right there seated in, next to him. And um, so he wrote that letter to them, and he, talk, he talks really in these nine verses about what it looks like to be a missionally engaged Christian. So let's look at these verses together. This is from Jude, starting at Jude 17. It's just one chapter, so it's just kind of funky. It's Jude 17. It goes like this. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. So he's saying there, look, this should be no surprise. It's no big deal. The, the, the apostles themselves told us that this sort of thing would happen. They said to you that in the last days there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Let's unpack this a little bit because it's not in these verses, but I want to talk about what was this teaching that, was, uh, that, that these folks were teaching that was leading them into a place where they would be scoffers and where they would be just followers of themselves and their own desires. It, it's not here, but it, we know it's up earlier in the, in the passage by the description of what they were teaching. It was a thing called Gnosticism. Okay? That, that word comes from the, from the, 
from the Greek word gnos, uh, gnosis, which is like knowledge. So um, it was sort of a knowledge religion. And the heresy, worked, the heresy was around really prominently for the first 300 years of the church's history. And all the early church fathers wrote about it and, and, try, and combated it. And, uh, and I really think it's still in place in some subtle ways even today. Uh, I, think, I think most people would agree with that. But anyway, this thing was called Gnosticism. And um, it had two big aberrations in its doctrine. Now, we're like, man, we go to a warehouse to learn about doctrine. But just kind of hang with me here for a minute, if you will. Um, this is kind of a stretch, I know. But the main, the main places where the apostles had fault with this teaching was the first one. It held out that, that life was, was dualistic that there was black and that there was white, that, you know, specifically what they held out was that, that matter was evil and that the spiritual was good. And this was sort of a run over, if you will, from, from Greek thought, specifically from Plato. And if, if you think about Christian teaching, you know anything about Christian teaching, what you really see is that Christians don't hold that at all. Christians see things as fallen, things as broken, for sure. But in a real way, what we see is that, you know, God is redeeming it and putting it all back together and restoring it. So if you, if you have an idea that, you know, you know things, you know, that, that, that material is evil and only the spiritual is good, it can lead a couple of different ways. If you're a legalist, where that will lead you is you'll say, you know, I'll throw this out there. Um, we went to some, Kathy and I and some friends this week went to see Band of Horses. Now, if you don't know this band, you need to know this band. It is so good. It is, they're just so great. In fact, Steve has been kind enough to play like four songs before the service from, their, from one of their albums. If you're really a legalist, where you'll end up on this, if you think that material is bad, you'll just say, that's just bad stuff, that rock and roll, especially that stuff that's not Christian rock and roll. You shouldn't go to a concert like that, and you shouldn't be drinking beer because that is evil by its very nature. We don't hold that. Where the Gnostics, Gnostics, Gnostics went, which even was a different direction, they went towards the other side, licentiousness. They just said, look, the body's evil, and it won't, it won't go into the next world. Only the spiritual will be there. So it doesn't matter what we do. So let's do anything we want. So effectively, it was like they were people that would be married who would say, yeah, I love my wife, and I'm married to her, but I find it so hard to be faithful, and it's not really important anyway. My obedience doesn't really matter. And so they had this sort of licentiousness about them. The second thing that they had going on is they had sort of, they believed that there was sort of a mystical or extra, extra biblical experience to get knowledge that was obtained um, really, in a, it wasn't available to everybody. And it wasn't really entirely clear how you could get that experience. And so some people had this experience and some others did not. And those two presuppositions, mystical experience and dualism, led to a number of real uh, odd heresies or applications. Heresy is always in the application. And the main one I want to point out is that, um, is that um, they really believed some things about Jesus that the original apostles didn't believe. For instance, they, sort of, they had to deal with the, the cross. Most heresies break down when you get to Jesus, you end up with this Jesus that's suffering and dying. And so it was really difficult for them to explain, you know, what was happening on the cross. What they said was this, was that, um, was that at Jesus' baptism there in the River Jordan, that when he's being baptized, that the Spirit came upon him. That was good. But right before the crucifixion, the Spirit left him. And so his death on the cross was just his body dying. It was just a normal thing you would expect, just his body being burned up in the moment of suffering in this world. But his Spirit went free. It sounds good. 
It sounds good. The problem is it's not right. Because when you end up in that place, what you end up with is a... Christianity, if anything else, is relational, even though I'm talking about doctrine. And if you go that way, what you end up is a God... You end up with a God without tears. You end up with a God that doesn't really suffer. You end up with a God that's a coach. You end up with a God that can give you instruction. But you don't end up with a God that really fully loves you, a God that hasn't really been wounded in the ways that you've been wounded. And Tim, Tim Keller explains it this way. You always talk about Tim Keller, so here goes um, your Tim Keller moment. Um, you know, on the cross, when, when Jesus was dying, he said a number of things. One of the things he said was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Christians hold is that in that moment, that was not just his physical death, because his physical death although it was happening, it was sort of a flea bite, if you will, in the realm of suffering. What was really happening there was he was really enduring the fullness of hell. Now, wow. Some of you are going, wow, this guy thinks there's a real hell. Let me, let me, hold on with me. Let me explain this, because I know that lots of us don't think there is such a thing as a real hell. Here's the thing that's happening. If, 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 if I say something that offends you and I say something you don't like, then maybe I meet you after the service today. And uh, when we're introduced, you think, that guy, pound sand, I'm not going to shake his hand. Okay, it's a slight. I'll realize it. Um, I will not lose any sleep over it, but I'll realize I was slighted. Right? It's a, it's a wound, but it's a very minor wound. Um, it would be different if you were one of my best friends and you just cut me off and you said, I don't like what you said, and I'm not going to talk about it, and you're done. I'm not, you're not welcome in my house anymore. That would be really harmful. be really, really hard. You know, imagine in a worse light or offense. Let's imagine that I come home from work one night and my wife says to me, I don't love you. I've never loved you. Get your things and get out. Now, those three levels with those of, of alienation, what they tell us and what you know is true is that, is that the closer we are to somebody, the longer we've known them, the more intimate we are with them. When we're abandoned by them, the wound is deeper and, and, and more brutal and goes closer to our heart, closer to, you know, just deep down inside of us. It's much more painful. Christ, we believe, Jesus, excuse me, we believe that Jesus... Was, is, is a member of the Trinity, this perfect communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Father, Son, that's the, that's the Trinity. That relationship, Jesus' relationship with the other members of the Trinity, was be, is beginningless. Beginningless. And the level of intimacy is perfect oneness. God is one. And so in the moment on the cross... When he says, you are, why are you forsaking me? It is a moment of deep desperation. Annihilation of the self. Complete aloneness. Rejection. Utter emptiness. It is hell. It is hell. And so, you know, that's why for Christians this teaching about the cross and believing that Jesus really suffered and died in fullness was so important, and the Gnostics didn't hold that. Now, this is going to play out a couple ways as we go forward. Here's the next set of verses. The, that they're, and what they're going to answer is this. So, if, how were people who were following Christ with all their hearts, who these, we won't call them missionally engaged folks, what were they to do in that situation? Seems seems dangerous. Well, the first thing is found here where Jude writes, but you, dear friends... Build yourselves up in your most holy faith 
and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. It's, uh, he, he, the way maybe it was surprising is the first thing he says to do is to take care of yourself. Build yourself up in this holy faith. And he gives a couple ways to do that. Um, I know something, about, um, know something about the building process. Uh, Kathy and I bought our home 14 years ago? 14 years ago. Um, it's almost been renovated after 14 years. Um, it's largely renovated, but it has been a process. It has been a long process. Um, when, okay, first of all, she found this house, not me, so um, that's the first thing. Um, yeah, I'm blaming you. Um, no, I'm, I'm working it for laughs, that's what it is. Um, no, but she did. You found, she found the house. And it was a fixer-upper, to say the least. Um, and so we bought it. We didn't have a lot of money. And uh, we had a lot of energy and a lot of love to live in that house. And so we just thought that that would kind of pull it all together. And um, so at, after we closed the house, we went over that night um, to kind of, you know, bask in the glow of that little nest that we had arranged. And, um, you know, something funny happened. Um, we were just stood there in this one bathroom, and while we were there... This roach, it just kind of went up the wall, right? Just kind of climbed up the wall. It's like a, roast, a, a roach the size of your thumb, you know, one of those kinds. The kind that taunts you by, like, when you go to swing at him, he flies right back at your face. And you're like, ah! And that happened. And um, somewhere as we stood there, a tear fell from Kathy's eye. It's true. Oh, it was hard. It took effort, it took planning, it took resources. But in time, that house has become something substantial. If you come to our house now after 14 years, what we hope is that you will feel our hospitality, you'll feel our, you, somehow you'll feel God himself in it. That house is substantial. You can build a shed in a day, but is it substantial? Will it stand Will it bring comfort and protection to all who come to, to enter it? Will you find rest when you enter a shed? You can get a relationship with God in a moment. But will it be substantial? Will it stand? Will it give shelter, comfort, rest to people who come into it to stay? Probably not. It takes Time and it takes effort. Jude says to build yourself up in your most holy faith. And he breaks it down two really straight ways. Here's what he means. The Gnostics denied the teaching of the apostles. And this is really a call back to, to the, the apostles' original teaching. And um, I'm just going to throw this out. You know, we are, we, nobody here probably calls himself a, a Gnostic, but we are functional Gnostics. We are functional Gnostics when we don't interact. And it doesn't have to be a hard version of the Bible. It can be online. But when we go days, weeks, months without any real intentional interaction with the apostles' teaching, then we're, we're much the less for it. We will wither and we will die just like, just like plants that are going out of cracks of sidewalks. It just will not last. Why? Because the entirety of the teaching... This is not, this is not by the way, this is not the full revelation of God. God, God, the full revelation of God, it can't be contained like this. 
But this is the full, I would call it, this is the fullest revelation of what God is like and what his people is like and what their relationships would be like of any revelation that's out there. It is, it is by far and away more than enough to understand what God is like and who you are and what that interaction would be like and, and how real life is found. And so Jude is telling us not to be uh, walking encyclopedias, if you will. He wouldn't have anything to do with that. He's saying, you know, be the kind of people that interact with the Word in some way, in the Bible in some way, so that this Bible isn't just in your head, it falls to your hearts. Another writer, a guy named Paul, said, you know, we want to be the kind of people that, you know, the, the law, this thing isn't written on the stone, it's written on our hearts, it shows up in our interactions. We walk it out in our shoes every day. And secondly, Jude displays for us that this building process is about a relationship with God. And you almost, I almost missed it. I couldn't believe it. Um, but it's here. He does this thing with the Trinity here. He says, pray the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love, and wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bam, bam, bam. All three members of the Trinity, just all in one place. He is talking about this community, this oneness with God. He's saying when you pray, don't, don't go just like with big, empty vacuous statements. I mean, get real. God knows who you are. He knows what's the de- He knows who you are better than who you are. He knows me. He created me. He sees my heart. In that prayer, what I'm, what I'm needing to do is tell him what my desires really are, to tell him what my hopes really are, to tell him what my fears really are, to tell him what I really am wanting. And when I'm praying, I need to listen. I need to listen and listen for him to speak. Listening for answers, that's okay. I mean, that's kind of baby steps, but, and, and that's really good. But also listening for affirmation. You know, if, if you read a story in the Bible and you, th- and, and you think a really good way to apply that is to just stop and just say, God, if I really believe this, what would I be like? And wait. And you'll hear something back. I'm sure of it. And over time, you'll get affirmations, and you'll hear things that you didn't even know you didn't even know about yourself. You know, there's this really great verse in the early part of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, and it says that at the end of time, that God will hand each person a white stone upon which is written their name that they didn't even know themselves. That that's rich for me to think that God knows me so well. The one who created me has written my name on a stone, something that can't be destroyed, something that will last no the time, and he will give it back to me. And what happens in intimate prayer, the kind that Jude is describing, is that God gives you glimpses into what that name will be. What is your name? Who are you? Not all the other voices that tell us so many things, but what does God really say? Getting that affirmation from him and listening and watch this, praying in the Spirit, and asking God, prompt me, I don't know how to pray. And there's a few people in this community who really do this. I've watched them in, in, when we pray. They'll say, God, tell us what to pray. And they wait. And they kind of just come up, this stuff just comes out, and you're like, man, I had a list this, you know, Mr. Logical, this long. And somebody like Tim O'Neill just kind of cut through all that stuff and just, here it is. And you're like, that, that was from God. That'll play pray. Transformation of a house happens when you pick up a hammer and you swing the thing. You know, until you pick it up and you get some energy behind it, it's just kind of a funny shaped paperweight. That's it. 
is not a hammer. And the same thing is true with our lives. Transformation happens in life when we pick up this Bible and when we pick up a conversation with God and we put some energy behind it. And I'm not perfect at it. I wouldn't even say that I'm good at it. And um, this was great to hear this this week from me. The Gnostics created this religion of insider knowledge, of kind of impersonal revelation. It was devoid of tears. It was devoid of experience. It was devoid of contact. Our faith is rich with the salt of tears, with the joy of meaningful experience, and with the continuous presence of God. It's radically different. So that's the first thing. Missionally engaged means that you are pursuing a relationship with God. It doesn't mean you'll be doing it perfectly, but it means it's, it's out there and something is happening intimately with God. The second thing is this. The missionally engaged people are interacting with their, with their neighbors and with their friends. And we saw these in the, in the videos that we, we watched in the first three weeks. And, and I'm going to go through this Jude passage to just put some real how-tos on it. The verses that are here go this way. Be merciful to those who doubt. That's critical. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. The fact that the word mercy shows up twice in this few couple of these two couple of sentences means something. It's important. And so let's talk about mercy. It seems to be the thing that's easiest for us to grip, and, and we're just going to throw it out. No, let me, let me back up. Let me back up. I want to talk about who these people are. Because this is, I know this is going to be potentially, um, this is potentially inflammatory or, or offensive, and I don't mean it to be, but I'm going to throw it out there. He's, when he's going to this section, I don't know that he's necessarily talking about these Gnostics. I think he's just talking about our neighbors. He's talking about people that, um, that we find ourselves within geographical proximity. That's what Jesus is teaching about. Who's my neighbor? Your neighbor is anybody who, with whom God's put you in geographical proximity, and that's what he's talking about. These are people that are struggling to hold on to the faith that they have. They're on the edge. They're thinking, uh, this is not working. I've got one foot in. I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to do something different. He's talking about people that, um, that have maybe been around the edges but have never, never really thought, you know, a relationship with God was really, really what they wanted, didn't really want to cross over into that land. And he's talking about our neighbors and our, our friends that are folks that just would be really honest and just would say, man, I just, I do not believe. I am not a follower of Jesus, and I'm completely okay with that. Well, that's what he's talking about. Um, he's talking about our fathers, and mothers, our sisters, our brothers, our neighbors, the people we work next to. And I think he's talking about, you know, a, a, a fairly large, I'm, I'm ha- very happy to say, a very largest group of people that are here on Sunday mornings, because I think that is completely appropriate that folks are here warehouse checking stuff out. Now, there's a couple of approaches you can take. You know, you can act like an ostrich and put your head in the sand and never say anything to anybody about your relationship with Christ or how it would be meaningful. And that's my preferred method in my life. I pretty much have every nuance of that approach well honed. Um, If you want guidance on how to do that, I can guide you through any situation um, without getting into any trouble with somebody. And then there's folks that just are completely confrontational, you know, and and because that's not my baggage, I just want to rip their heads off. But there are folks that just sort of judge people all the time or that, you know, every time somebody says something, it's just a great opportunity to say, well, you know, the Bible says, or my pastor said. Neither one of those works. Jude gives this three gives us this passage and tells us there's sort of three hallmarks that will guide these relationships that we have with people that are doubters. He says, be marked by mercy or compassion, be marked by courage, be marked with humility. And they're all critical. Now, back to where I went off track before. 
Mercy's the easiest, and it's when we sort of get the quickest. If, if you're a person that's a Christian, and you've really done that accounting that we talk, I talked about earlier about Christ on the cross, and you realize that he didn't do all those things just to shame you, he really did those as the full expression of his love to secure mercy for you, then if you've drunk mercy that deep, you're going to realize that mercy is something that you want to give freely. There's a little hint here. If you find yourself as a person that's difficult for you to give mercy to people, it's likely because you've not experienced mercy yourself, not at the level that God wants you to have it. This shows up in one of the names for God. One of the names in the Holy Spirit, one of the names for the Holy Spirit is paraclete, and it means to come alongside of. To come alongside of. And in our own, in, in people that are Christians that really have a deep relationship with God, what you get out of them is they realize that God has come alongside them in their addictions. He's come alongside of them in their, their slavery, in their obsessions, in their sin. And when he's come alongside of them, he has spoken to them, wooed them in kindness. The great proverb that says, it is kindness that leads, oops, it is kindness that leads to repentance. Not arguments. Not political parties. Not the right radio station. It's kindness that leads to repentance. And we're called to do the same. To be transformed in the likeness of God. The likeness of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. We're called to doubt the doubts of doubters. We're called to cry the tears of the wounded. To feel the loneliness of the alone. To give mercy to those who doubt. You know, I, I one of the reasons why we carve out a space in our service on Sunday morning, unlike a lot of churches, to use a song like Brandy Carlisle's earlier, is that we want to give voice to doubt because we all experience. I'm going to be real honest with you. I mean, I'm going to date myself, but here goes. Um, you know, for some of us that are older, you know, when we heard Kurt, when we heard Kurt Cobain say, you know, basically sing anything on you know, never mind. I mean, we knew that we were hearing the lamentations of the Old Testament in a way that, that the church had forgotten in the way that the church had abandoned. You, you hear, you hear a, a group like that, a, a band like that, and you know that they have the complaint of the gospel, the first half of the gospel, better than most Christians have it themselves. And so at Warehouse, we intentionally carve out a space for our doubt and that lament. We give space for that. We show mercy to that. Now, that's the easy one. The hard one is courage. And the hard one is really hard. Snatch others from the fire and save them. Now, I'm going to tell a story at risk of being judged, but here's my story. Um, My father was chronically ill for a long time before he finally passed. And um, the last month felt very arduous before he died. And um, we had a relationship where we really didn't talk. I mean, I never heard my father use the word God in any, any sentence other than GD. Um... And, um, yeah, that's how it was. Now, this is odd because one of the connections is that my father was a, was a, um, like a, not a, an altar boy. Knew that, but didn't ever know kind of what happened, what rupture occurred between altar boy and a man on his deathbed that never used, never uttered the word God really, never really talked about God with his family. Um, so, on the night before his death, he was having a surgery the next day, I decided to show some courage and to cross that line and engage him in a conversation. And so um, I asked him, So, Dad, 
what do you think is going to happen if the surgery doesn't go well? You might think that's pretty insensitive to address a person on their deathbed, what could be their deathbed, with that kind of a question. Um, But it was a question that took a lot of courage for me. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not good at this, and I'm still not good good at it to this day, and I could use more courage. You know, our revulsion... I think, around having those kind of conversations is that it's, we, we feel like Christianity is such an exclusive deal, the way we present it. But let me tell you what's maybe a little more exclusive and a little bit more difficult for me in that situation. My father, near as I can tell, did not keep a list of things pure. Near as I can tell, he did not have a life that was really clear-cut. And I think some of his own inability... To say in that moment, this is what's going to happen to me if I don't make it through the surgery, was because he had uncertainty and he didn't have assurance and he didn't know and he knew he had not kept the score very well. That seems cruel to me, and that seems ex- more exclusive to me to say to somebody, "You haven't kept the rules well enough, and so you're out." Jesus, when he was on the cross, he was on the cross there with two other criminals. And one shouted at him from the cross, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, take us down. Get us down from here. And Jesus didn't respond to him, but the other criminal said back to him, he said, what are you talking about? We are criminals. We are justified in, in, the, in, the, in the judgment that we're receiving and the punishment that we're receiving. And then in his confession, he, he, that's the first half, In the second half of his confession, he turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom today, remember me. And Jesus responded and said, today you'll be in paradise. The scandal of the cross, the scandal of what we're presenting to people, is that we are setting the bar as low as it can go. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter if you keep the list perfectly. You just have to want it. You just have to want it. That's a very, very, very low bar. But we, frankly, aren't, we really have to lean against our fear. One of the elements of courage is that in order to be courageous, there's an element there of personal risk. I had, in having that conversation with my father and other conversations I've had like that with people, I have to risk that I will be rejected, which is my greatest idol and fear, honestly. I had to risk making him unhappy on his deathbed. You will have to take risk in order to be courageous. Show courage. Mark Hurd uh, said this in one of his songs. It's a great line. Said lines. He said, What kind of friend would tell you lies to spare you from the bitter truth? What kind of friend could stoop so low as to shield your eyes from the mirror's gaze? What kind of friends do friends become when a blind eye turns on the damage done? What kind of friend could I become? What kind of friend am I? The third one is this. It's humility. And it shows up in the verses where he says, show others, to, others show fear mixed, to others show mercy mixed with fear. And what he's saying there is he's not saying to strike fear in their hearts. He's saying... Take a heavy dose of it for yourself because there's a real true spiritual, there's a real spiritual reality here. And that's that when you go and you have to have a hard interaction with somebody, don't forget that you're just, you know, yourself a, a breath away from the same, the same sin. We are all human. We are all human. 
and we're all very broken and fallen. And, and a wise person is one who counts, takes a great account of themselves before they go to confront somebody else. Um, Richard Trista, who I think is, uh, he's, he's somebody I think that he teaches at uh, All Souls in London, he said this. He said, we can only do this work if we realize we are haters of sin, whilst at the same time being mothers to sinners. And I think that that's the right balance, the right, the right balance there, embracing our own sin and showing humility. Here's the moment of truth. I went through this uh, preparation, and uh, like, I was like, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10 on the uh, trying to engage with God, how's that going? <laughs> not a great, not, not, not the score I wished. You know, how am I doing when it comes to showing mercy and, and courage and humility to people around me? Maybe not the score I would like. But, but Jude doesn't leave people there. This is, he ends uh, his letter with what is widely recognized as, as the best benediction in the whole Bible. And it goes like this. He encourages people by saying, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God of our Savior be glory, be majesty, be power, be authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. You know, when uh, the press wrote about Aquari's story, now the, the most legendary 57th finish in all of, uh, of all of history in a marathon, one of them wrote, Today we have seen a performance that gives meaning to the word courage. Aquari finished the race because he knew it was for the finish that he was called. How can we know that we'll finish this race well. We'll stumble. We'll fall. That's not the point. We'll get off track. But how can we know that we'll finish well? It's in that benediction. We'll finish well because God is keeping us. It's God who will do the work. You can do it because God will do it in you. One person put it this way, and I'll end here. How will you keep on? We can keep on because God is keeping us. So, go for it. It's a tough call. It's hard. But um, being missionally engaged is what we're about here at Warehouse. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a pretty dense set of verses, but really challenging us to uh, live lives that are engaged with God and also engaged with our neighbors and our friends. Thank you for showing us how that works practically. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, at this time, we're going to take an offering. This is just a time when those of us or those of us that really feel gratitude towards God for what he's done, what that mercy is like, we give something back. So um, 